Good morning, everybody. Um, I was told before I started that I need to talk loud. So I hope this is loud enough, brother. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't supposed to mention that on, on mic, was I? <laughs> but good morning. It's, it's good to be here again. And it's good that I'm not just looking out at one person or two people at the desk like it was the last time. There's human beings. Ray, what are you saying, brother? I can't, under the mic, I'm just about to make you out. Good to see you guys. Mama Sarah at the back. It's good to be here. Um, thank you for your prayers, brother. Thank you. Much, much appreciated. And yeah, it's good to be. I feel like I always feel like I'm coming home here. And yeah, your, your love and support has been yeah, invaluable, bro. Thank you. I love Mark's gospel. Um, the main reason why I love it so much is because I was saved reading Mark's gospel. Um, I think it was 14 years ago. I'm not one of those diehards that knows the date, the time. The, I know the place, but I don't know the date. It was around quarter to eight, I think it was, on a Wednesday, about 14 years ago. But also love the high-levelness of it, and, and it gives us um, glimpses into Jesus' journeys. From chapter one to eight, we see his journey in and around the area of Galilee. And from chapters 11 to 13, we read about his journey um, going to Jeru heading towards Jerusalem. And then from chapters 14 to 15, we've got what is called the Passion of Christ. Um, his journey to the cross, and then we've got his journey, um, well, chapter 16 is the resurrection, the ultimate journey, defeating death. And where we left off last week was with these two groups of people who were coming together to plot to kill Jesus. Here Mark allows the dark shadow of the cross to fall on the pages, even at this early stage in the story, because for us readers... The cross and, and Jesus' work on it, it's already in sight. So this morning we're going to take a bit of a whiz through the, the, the remainder, the, the, the chunk of chapter 3 from where we left off last week. And I've broken the chapter down into different chunks, so I won't read it all at one time. I'm going to read it in different chunks. I'm sorry if that messes up the, the pro presenter. You've already got it in one big chunk. Um, but before we continue, let's, um, let's invite God to the table in prayer. Father, just thank you for this moment. Um, Lord, just still our hearts and clear our minds of, of whatever's there. Lord, may we come to you um, empty, ready to be filled up. Lord, thank you that we can be here. Um, it almost sounds cliche now. Thank you we can still connect with you online but Lord let us appreciate that as a blessing and let us not look at it as this technological thing let us still see it as a spiritual thing that we're coming to you our heavenly father that daddy's arms are still open wide even in these times and Lord let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O Lord my rock and my redeemer Amen. Amen. So the crowds followed Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushed forward to touch him. 
Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And so as we continue this glimpse into Jesus' journey, we see that after having yet again been opposed by the Pharisees, Jesus goes out of the city with his disciples, and he go, as, he goes, but as he goes along his way, an even larger crowd starts to gather around him. And we read that these people were coming from different ends. Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions by the Jordan, Tyre, and Sidon. And the journey from Jerusalem to Capernaum is two hours and 20 minutes, give or take traffic, according to Google Maps. And it's, it's kind of mad that you can actually look up a route that Jesus would have taken and his people would have taken on Google, and then you can go onto Google Streets, and it's not really a street, it's this, this track, this dust, dusty road, but you can follow it along. It's, it was, I was really enjoying myself last night, a bit too much maybe. And it's, it's a two-hour two hour drive it's kind of small change to us here in the UK. So, for example, that's door-to-door from Tottenham to, say, Hastings, um, which is probably the perfect road trip length. And I've got friends in America who will drive from one state in Iowa eight hours down to their grandmother's house on a Sunday to have Sunday dinner, and it's just it's, it's nothing to them. It's just normal life. But for these people in the crowd who had come to see this, this healer man they'd heard about, it was a 34-hour walk from Jerusalem to Capernaum. And that's in today's road quality, we're going by Google Maps directions, which I didn't follow. Um, I left it there at the number, and that's with decent footwear, etc. And another thing worth keeping in mind is, is the vast spread of Jesus' ministry. Imagine you was one of those people back then, taking that journey. If it takes 34 hours to go from Jerusalem to Capernaum, imagine the people that you'd encounter along the way. You'd pass a village or a town and maybe you'd ask for some water and you'd be asked, well, where are you from? And where are you going to? And you'd say, you're from Jerusalem, you're heading to Capernaum to try and see this man that, 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 that's going around the country healing people that were paralyzed, bedridden with fever, riddled with leprosy, consumed by evil spirits. And imagine the reaction of that water giver they have to wonder, wait, could this be true? This person is taking this long trip to see the things they've heard or maybe even witnessed. It's got to be true. They might think, wait, I've got to see for myself. I've got to take so-and-so and, and, and tell them and, and, and they can tell such-and-such such over there because they've got this thing wrong with them and they've got this person with this thing wrong with them. And so you can see how quickly these crowds start to swarm um, from all ends of the country into this place in Capernaum where this, this healing holy man was, was said to be. And I'm trying not to hang too much on one small part of a massive chapter, but it's all just so good. And I mean, we read, for example, and this is just one example of why when we read the Bible, we need to spend time studying it as well. And... I mean, most of the time we, we read the Bible on the surface level, and there's nothing wrong with that. We'll go through a reading plan, or you know, we'll be following a particular book of the Bible or theme in the Bible, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But we do need to be spending time um, studying what's in what we're reading. And I'm talking to myself here more than anything. Even as a missionary, I spend so much time 
you know, reading the word and applying it to my work and, and trying to reach and equip people with what I'm reading. But at times, I find myself not studying the meaning and the culture and the context behind it. And this is important for our understanding of Jesus, for our understanding of his life, his, his early followers and their experience and their context in first century Israel. So, for example, Tyre and Sidon, these were two Gentile cities in the north of Israel. And Jesus had been um, sent to the Jews, the lost tribes of Israel, but he still ministered to you know, these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. And later on in Mark, we'll see Jesus uh, ministering to a Canaanite woman in, in Tyre and moving on to Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, into Decapolis. And the Decapolis is an, it is an area in the northeastern part of the country that has most of its land in Jordan, except for Damascus, which is in Syria, and Hippos and Scythopolis, if I pronounce that correctly, in, in Israel. And this was mainly a Greek-speaking space, a, a sort of center for Greek and Roman culture in the middle of a region populated by what we'd call Semitic-speaking people, the Nabataeans, the ancient Arabs and the Canaanites, for example. And I'm not just highlighting these two areas for the sake of it. Throughout a good chunk of the book of Mark, we see Jesus moving around from place to place, preaching, healing, rebuking. But it's important to get a picture of this Jewish man, the Messiah, self-proclaimed, sent to the Jews, the lost tribes of Israel. But he had many interactions, saving, healing, life-changing interactions with those that were not like him, with the Gentiles. And remember, anyone who wasn't a Jew is a Gentile. And the reason why I'm putting a spotlight on this place is because Jesus is surrounded at this point in which we find ourselves in Mark by not just his own people, not just Jewish people, you know, who he would have been familiar with, he would have grown up around. Um, he, they would have been culturally his people. He's surrounded by Gentiles. And just picture the crowd, and I guess let's try and pull it into modern 2021 context a bit. You've got a man standing on the corner of Lewisham High Street, outside of Greg's. And this is a man, it's been said, you, you witnessed on Instagram, on Twitter, on Snapchat, healing people of diseases. You witnessed before your own eyes he, he, a man in a wheelchair with broken legs, and Jesus just, geez, sorry, not Jesus, that's not in the story. Um, this holy man in Lewisham said to this guy in the wheelchair, get up and walk, go to the shop and get me a soup and walk. And he does it. And this man hasn't been able to walk for his whole life. And this healer, holy man, is a Christian, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's healing people in Jesus' name. And let's be real, that crowd that gathers around him wouldn't be small like we are today. It's going to be massive, it's going to fill the high street, it's going to go down into Hivergreen, Lee, all different areas. They're going to want to come and see this man that is doing these things live on Instagram. If only, actually no, Jesus wouldn't have won Instagram live back then because that, he was, anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. And that, that crowd isn't going to be made up just of Christians or just Jewish people. There's going to be all manner of kind of people standing around this guy on Lewisham High Street. People will be from everywhere under the sun because here, here in London, every nation, tribe and language is under the sun. And it's a beautiful thing. But for the people of first century Israel and beyond, 
They didn't have radio, television, internet, Zoom, Teams, YouTube. But word got from village to village, it spread across this nation, region to region. And suddenly this little town by the Sea of Galilee was overfilled with people coming to be cured and bringing sick relatives. And even here there's a lesson for us to be learned from Jesus. Who are we reaching? Who are we sharing the good news of Jesus with? Who are we praying with or for? Is it just our people? Who do we let know that Jesus died on the cross for them? Is it just people that are like us? Anyways, there we go. I just wanted to paint a picture of the scene around Jesus at the lake with this boat that he's asked his disciples to make ready. The crowds have grown and, and you know, there was this danger that Jesus could be either rushed or crushed or both. So he needed to make a quick getaway. So he said, get the boat ready just in case. And what's going on here? Mark has given us another picture of just how popular Jesus had, has got and just how much his popularity was growing and of him healing many people, casting out demons, doing exorcisms. And it's a constant theme. Jesus goes from place to place, from house to house. He heals some peeps, drives out some impure spirits, tells them to hush up, and then news about him spreads quickly over the whole of Galilee, as we read in chapter 1. Later that evening, the whole town gathers at the door. Jesus heals many. He drives out demons, but he wouldn't let them speak. And here again, back in chapter 3, at the boat, at the lake, he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. But Mark doesn't let us forget that with Jesus, there's always something deeper, sometimes even darker, going on. Jesus being able to go around and, and, and healing people with horrible skin diseases, with paralysis, um, is it, way beyond normal medical abilities. Jesus is moving on spiritual levels here. And Jesus is doing all of this through and with the power of the Holy Spirit. But these evil and impure spirits that Jesus is drawing now, they know who he is. They know that they're in the presence of, of a bigger and greater power than them. They know Jesus isn't a normal healing man. And we probably naturally think, why wouldn't Jesus want word to spread about him? Why would he not want these impure spirits that he's casting out to be telling the whole world who he is? Son of God or Holy Son of God, as we read in the previous chapters. But put simply, it's too early. Jesus' divine nature, who he really is, the Son of God, must be revealed on the cross by what he does on the cross and his defeat and death and his rising again on the third day. Jesus seems to want to sort of control the spread of information about him as well as the timing of that information. Yes, he's the Messiah and the Son of God, but that should only be revealed at his death and his resurrection, what he was ultimately sent here to do. And for us, as we, obviously, as we read through Mark, we know from the get-go who Jesus is. At the beginning, even if you didn't know before you read it, you know from the first line, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And sometimes, I, I, this is actually off script, I mean, sometimes we can read those words and it's just, not just words, but the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
boy. And we know already how this story ends. But we sometimes, like the crowds, perhaps we get attracted to the healer, miraculous Jesus, and kind of overlook, maybe even sometimes consciously or subconsciously ignore that his primary calling was to come here and die, to suffer. And as we'll see as we go further into Mark, and, and are we sometimes like the disciples who would at times sort of design their own version of Jesus? You know, this Jesus that he doesn't have to die on the cross. But as the disciples, they eventually learned he does and he did. And the secret that Jesus wanted kept, we are on the other side of it. And, and you know, there's no longer to be silent about who Jesus is, what he's done on the cross, what he, he has done in our lives, what he continues to do in our lives. And that sweet promise of what is to come when he returns for us. So we move on to verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, that's probably wrong, Simon the Zeller, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Look at that mark he's injecting at the end there of that, of that little chunk. Already again, the shadow of the cross. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So far, as we journey through Mark, we've, see, we've been seeing Jesus going around teaching, working miracles, showing compassion. Back in chapter 1, he stopped along the way and he called others to him, um, Simon, James, John, Andrew. In chapter 1, Jesus says to them, come follow me. But it wasn't him just saying, come follow me to heaven. Jesus wanted them to follow him to reach the lost and the outcast and the least and the low in society and to love them and now here on this mountainside he's taking it a step further he goes up the mountainside he calls 12 of his followers from the crowd and he's appointed them as his apostles his foot soldiers and they had three parts to their assignment as we read in verse 14 the first part is to be with Jesus that they might be with him we read And have you experienced yourself the difference? Until now, these apostles were merely disciples, new converts to the, the way, the new followers of Jesus. And we've all been there in our own way. New believers, going through the motions, following Jesus from a distance maybe, jumping in and out of our walk with him. Jesus was asking them to be with him. Before any ministry takes place, before preaching or any kind of work, be with Jesus, and it goes the same for us. Have you ever asked a Christian friend or not for advice maybe, or help with something? You know, we know the difference between someone who's just going through the church motions and someone who is with Jesus, who follows him, who learns from him and about him. 
you know, tries to love and lend and mend like him, before we help anyone, before we do anything for God's kingdom, we need to be with Jesus, praying, having devotional time with him in his word, in his presence, communion, communion, communion with his people. And the second part of the assignment in verse 14 is to preach. In the same way Jesus said he has come to preach, he sent the apostles to preach, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near, as we read in Matthew chapter 10, to proclaim the kingdom for God and to heal the sick, Luke wrote in chapter 9 of his account. I really would suggest you read Matthew um, 10 and, and Luke 9, um, I mean, for the sake of reading them, but also Mark doesn't really spend too much on this topic, but in Matthew and Luke's account, there's an expanded um, version of the events. Before he's done, though, he gives us the third part of the newly appointed apostles' assignment, that's nearly a mouthful, to have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus is sending these men out into battle, into the middle of spiritual call of duty warfare. They're going to be going out into enemy territory, right into the middle of the kingdom of darkness, to drive out demons. And Jesus gives them the authority to do this. Power and authority, Luke writes. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, we see in Matthew's account. And Matthew goes on to tell us, Jesus said, freely you have been given, freely give. And the same goes for us. Verse 8 of Matthew 10 contains one of the most basic biblical principles for living a blessed life. Whatever God gives us should be used for his glory. And this can only happen when we freely give it back to him to benefit others. Just like with the first disciples and our apostles, God has given us the message of the good news to share. You know, we're participants in Jesus' ministry just as the apostles were. We have to, we've got the authority to be instruments of healing and of blessing to others every day. God's Spirit lives in us, those who choose to believe. And how very great is his power at work in us who believe. This power working in us is the same as the mighty strength which he used when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right side in the heavenly world. Paul writes in, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1. God is perfect, brothers and sisters. His love is perfect. His peace, his joy, his patience, his kindness, all of these things about God is perfect. And they are ours when we belong to him. And we, we receive these blessings freely so we must freely, without grumbling, without kissing our teeth, without moaning, we must give them away. As we use our gifts to serve others and to help others, we experience that God-given blessed life. Time is running. Let me stop digressing. Let's look at these um, cho this chosen dozen, this list of twelve and the number 12 reflects the number of tribes of Israel. And this is Jesus' way of starting a new people of God. 
Remember, through Peter, he was, first, he, first, he was the first person to raise his voice and preach at Pentecost, the day that the church began in the first century. Just after Jesus has ascended to heaven and all the believers are gathered in one place. Let me not start reciting Acts. I love Acts. But this is the day the church began its mission to the world. And he was the first to introduce Gentiles, non-Jewish people, into the church, the new people of God. It was a Jewish requirement that a Gentile must first become a Jew through being circumcised. And by accepting Cornelius and the others and ordering them to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ, as we read in Acts 10, without having to submit to the rite of circumcision, Peter's starting a new thing here that stirred up opposition from Jewish Christians and others at the time. And I say all this because it's important for us to grasp just what Jesus did when he sent those apostles, um, sorry, when he brought them together on the mountainside and made those disciples his apostles. It's led to us being here this morning. And that's not a concept, that's not an idea, that, that is real life. Let's take a quick look at these apostles. These 12 guys that would be sent to change the world and, and turn it upside down. What a mix. We've got Simon the Zealot. And Zealots, they were, they were violent, anti-Roman people. We've got Matthew, a tax collector. James, John, Peter, Andrew, fisherman. Thomas the Doubter, the, the realist. Peter, you know, fist or swords first and ask questions later. Why did Jesus put together such a mixed up dozen of different people and at, you know, at times you know conflicting personalities and I think he did it to them and I think he does it to us to grow us look at me and Ephraim completely different we managed to get along praise God <laughs> but I think it's to, to teach us to be humble you know through humility God, God has a place to work to teach us patience because after all, love is patient, and God is love. Amen? Amen? And to teach us unity, because no matter how different we might all be, unity in Jesus is so much bigger, so much better, so much beautiful, and greater than our differences. Being united in Christ. Shoulder to shoulder on God's mission. And I think he also does it so that the world can see just how different People who have, and, and going back to our three apostles assignment earlier, people who have and are with Jesus, just how different they are from the world. And when we skip forward three years, we see in the book of Acts that this bunch of 12 apostles minus Judas and, and adding Matthias, this same group of mixed up different people who would have grown in, in, in size by then, um, in terms of the number of disciples, they take the gospel to the world. Their miracles, preaching, love and compassion turn the world upside down. And we see in Acts 4 just how other people would react to them. They were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Fast forward another 2,000 years... And it's still happening. 
even at London City Mission, um, to, to reel off a few of my colleagues, there's a, a former window salesman who's a missionary, former head of year at a secondary school, missionary, ex-drug dealer, missionary, some guy who left school, no GCSEs, washed cars, repaired cars, fixed computers, dabbled in housing, and now he's standing before you this morning. Just a few that spring to mind of nearly 80 missionaries across the city, all different, all from different backgrounds and levels of study and culture, but all ordinary people, mixed up, blend up, all kind of ups, ordinary people. Different people, different names, but one saviour, Jesus the Messiah. All right, I'm preparing to land. Um, verse 20, Jesus entered the house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to him in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins, every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. And again we see Jesus with a big crowd gathering, so big that he and his people can't eat. We read that his family has turned up to take charge of him because he's out of his mind. It reminds me of my mum turning up to a dance or a house party to take charge of me. I lost my mind being there. But this was, this was serious things. The journey from Nazareth to, to Capernaum is 45 minutes by car, again according to Google. Eight hours by foot. So they must have been really concerned. I mean, I, couldn't, I can't picture my mum walking eight hours by foot to get me from my house party. She didn't care about me that much. But they must have been really concerned about Jesus to make that journey. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, they came down from Jerusalem, 34-hour trek. They must have been really threatened by Jesus to walk 34 hours. By now, the Pharisees, they can't deny that Jesus has an authority that is real. It exists. He heals lepers paralyzed people, cast out demons. It's been witnessed by so many people on so many different occasions. His authority has to be real. It's impossible for them to deny it. So their next avenue of attack is to challenge the basis of Jesus' authority, the source of it. It's either light from God or it's dark from the devil. They accept it's from God. We know where that's going to go. So they've got to turn it to dark by accusing Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul, 
driving out demons by the prince of darkness. They're basically trying to give credit to Satan for Jesus' work. By them trying to accuse Jesus of being in business with Satan, maybe even possessed by him, that would explain how he's able to do such things and would also justify them doing anything they want to control this man and detain him and maybe even silence him for good. But Jesus isn't having none of it. And instead of responding by lashing out to the scribes, he simply put, probably calmly just points out the flaw in their logic. If Satan is driving out Satan, he's fighting against himself. If civil war breaks out in a kingdom, that kingdom pretty much is going to end. If a household fights among themselves, the household could split and be no more. So if the devil is fighting the devil, surely logic dictates that even if the Pharisees are right in their nonsense that Jesus is working for the devil and he's possessed by him, etc., etc., then the devil's kingdom is pretty much quickly going to come to an end because it's fighting against itself. The strong man Jesus speaks about is the devil. And here Jesus is acknowledging the strength and presence of the devil but he goes on to say no one can enter a strong man's house without tying him up. Because Jesus is saying, yeah, the devil might be strong and real and might have some power, but I'm the stronger man. And I've come along and I've tied up the devil in his own yard. Jesus' healings and especially his casting out of demons are, the, are signs that the kingdom of God is arriving. The kingdom in which people have been held captive. The land of sin, the devil's playground, I, I could go on and on with, with analogies, will finally be set free. Jesus goes on to warn them that all sins can be forgiven, all kind of slander, but blasphemy, which is basically insulting or showing contempt for God, against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. So if Jesus' exorcisms are done by the power of the Holy Spirit, the refusal to accept this and, att and, and, and attest it to the devil and not God by the Pharisees, it, that's an unforgivable sin. We read on in verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. And remember who was at the door for Jesus earlier. It was his mother and his brothers. And as far as they were concerned, he's lost his mind. He left a good, good business carpenter to become a, basically a travelling preacher. The religious leaders, they were plotting to kill him, but he's not backing down. Huge crowds were starting to follow him, and as his family knew, you know, that sort of fame and attention, they knew what it could do to somebody's ego. He was showing spiritual power that he had never had before. He's picked this unlikely mixed-up group of disciples to be his apostles, meaning his judgment, it's, it's got to be flawed now. What's he doing? And all of this... Add it all up, and you can see why his family might think, mad sick, head no good. 
something's seriously wrong. When Jesus questions, who is my mother and brothers? We would naturally expect that his family would have some sort of special access to him. But yet they don't, because according to them, he's out of his mind. We've got to remember, his brothers didn't even support his ministry before his death and resurrection. We read in John chapter 7, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. His brothers. So when Jesus says, here are my brothers and sisters, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother, let's not get it twisted. He's not cutting ties with his family. When Jesus was on the cross, we saw his concern for his mother. Later on, Jesus' brother James would be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And his brother Jude would go on to write his letter warning Christians about false teachers and trying to convince them that being saved by grace doesn't give them or us a license to sin. And what Jesus means here is that there is a deeper kinship than just flesh and blood going on. A spiritual kinship now exists. That's born out of obedience to our Heavenly Father. Jesus describes this new family which is superior to the human family because it's eternal, it's stronger, and it's more satisfying. I mean, we've surely all witnessed it in our own walk with Jesus at times, maybe constantly. You know, when we meet someone and we find out that they're born again, that, that we're related to them through blood, but not through the blood of our mother or of our father, but through the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You talk about Jesus together, his life, his love, and what he's done for you and, and what he's done for them. You grow and you, and you learn about each other. Yes, you disagree. You don't see eye to eye on everything, but your family. How many of us find that we have more in common with our spiritual family than our earthly family? We see a lot of insides and outsides going on here in, in this part of the, the, the chapter, this closing part. We've got Jesus and his disciples, they went inside the house. Verse 20, his own family were outside of the house, metaphorically, physically. Verse 31, they're still standing outside. The people around Jesus tell him again, the people are outside. In Matthew's gospel, he, Matthew writes that Jesus points to his disciples and says, no, my family is sitting around me. In Hebrews 13, 12, we read, so also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. Jesus went outside for you so that you could come inside inside God's eternal kingdom, inside God's eternal family. And all we have to do is be humble and just sit at Jesus' feet. And surely it's got, to be what, it's got to be better than what this world has to offer. Try harder, do better, earn more, stop that. You're not good enough at that, do more. Isn't it better to hear believe in Jesus, sit at his feet, learn from him, take him for who he is, and you'll be an insider.
inside his kingdom family forever. As we continue our journey through Mark, as we watch these disciples following Jesus and, they, and, and starting to grow, let us grow with them. Let us keep in mind and in heart that we are a result. You, me, all of us are a result of what Jesus started with the apostles on that mountainside and what he did for us on the cross. Amen? Let us pray. Loving Father, we do thank you for the cross. Father, we thank you that you sent your son in obedience, in submission to you. Lord, we thank you that we have that access to you through Jesus. That no matter where we're from, no matter what we've done, no matter our creed or colour or anything that marks us or makes us stand out here on earth, you just look at us and see your son. If only we'd accept you and accept Jesus. So Lord, as we continue to, to go through this gospel, this, this second gospel full of good news, full of your son, full of you, may we marvel at you, may we May we know that Daddy is there. And with the words of Jesus' brother Jude, I pray to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.